Hey, beloved, if you haven't noticed or heard by now, we switched up the production schedule for three black men in all of our podcasts so that we'll put out episodes for about four months. We'll take a couple months off, come back for another four months and sort of repeat that cycle over and over again. And right now we're in one of them off cycles. So there's no new episodes of translation coming out on a bi-weekly basis. But I did want to share this conversation I had with my friend Zaru on his podcast called The Pilgrimage Podcast. I want to go ahead and say that at the front of this particular episode so you don't think you're tripping or nothing broke when you see the New Living Translation pop up, but it's a different cover and all of that stuff. I am pointing you towards his podcast because I think he's a dope dude who has dope conversations. But this conversation featuring him and yours truly, I wanted to share with you all. We cover a whole lot of ground when we talk about theology or preaching or battle rap. And it's two dudes who genuinely like each other talking. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. And if you do, I want to encourage you to check out his podcast. I'll include where you can find that in the show notes here. In the meantime, if you missed Three Black Men and all of our content, we are still putting out stuff on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash three black men. Check us out over there. But without any further ado, wanted to share this conversation that I had with Zeru on his podcast, The Pilgrimage Podcast. But maybe a little bit further ado. There might be an ad playing right after this. And then no further ado after that. It's just conversation. You feel me? All right. Hey y'all, what's good? Here we are with another day and another episode of the Pilgrimage Podcast. I'm your host, Zeru Fitzum. And we got another uh, a guest coming on today who's been on here before, was on season one, and is back again. Uh, back like I never left. Back like he never left. Yes, sir. We got Pastor Trey Ferguson, the scholar, the pastor, the father, uh, the writer, the, snap. <laughs> the rapper. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hey, if you want to get a sneak peek at some of his bars, uh, hit that, hit that sub stack. Uh, <laughs> hey, you making it hot, man. You making it hot. That, hey. was, that was an exclusive. That was, that was, that was an exclusive. But nah, yeah. you, you're right though. It's still there. If, yeah. if you're like Monday exclusive, you, you just got to hit the link, man. You just got to hit the link. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exclusive packages are for guests who put in the time. They, they put in the investment. And yeah, so. It is. Um, what is it? Yeah, we got, uh, Robert Giff- Griffin, uh, Augustus, <laughs> Trey Ferguson, the third. I'm Robert just Griffin, Augustus. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's incredible. It's incredibly wrong, but it's incredible nonetheless. It is incredible. Like when you break that word down in un, not credible, believable, <laughs> that is not believable. It's that not is- <laughs> believable. <laughs> yeah. he, he said, let me take you to the etymology of words. The etymology. I, l- let me give you denotation, not connotation. Denotation, He's, not con- I usually charge for this kind of stuff. And I'm, <laughs> I'm right. I'm giving, giving them free game, man. Hey, come on now. <laughs> hey. No, uh, 
Yeah, Trey, uh, in my social circles with my fam back home, the ones who live in Minneapolis and Atlanta, I'm always talking about how much of a blessing this last uh, two years of following you and I would say the last six to seven months of being able to just like, you know, pester you, uh, find encouragement from your sermons and your words and uh, a little bit of a relationship now, you know, it's 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 been really dope. So I... Yo, I really yeah, go ahead. That, Cause I'm gonna let you know, like sometimes I really, I really be forgetting that um people care, right? Like the people watch. So there's times when I'll, I'll just go and I do, I do my little job. Well, let me, let me not uh, belittle myself, or whatever. Right, like, right. I do my job and I try to be faithful and doing stuff. And then you'll text me sometimes that that same day later that week and be like, "Yo, that was a great word." And I'm like, "Yo, this dude really went back." Like, and it's not like you go to my church and feel obligated to do it like the fact that you care so i want to say in the same ways that um that that whatever ways you feel blessed it, it is entirely mutual that um, mm-hmm. i'm not only affirmed um and and feeling as though i'm doing what god has called me to do but i also am reminded of the need for community and accountability every time we chop it up bro yeah bro no that's uh that's love and yeah what the folks and the sermons i'm interested in listening to nowadays have been because I used to listen to sermons all the time. I used to be a janitor in a church, like in my oh, oh yeah, you a nerd, nerd. You be listening to sermons for fun, okay? Yeah, I, I, I went through one of them phases, <laughs> and, and it was in a phase of life. I'm not entirely ready to disclose on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> I hate but, but it was it was nonetheless a time that uh God was with me in. So we bless God for that, <laughs> but. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So nowadays though, cause I'm trying to economize my time. I was going to say maximize it, but not like to utilize I mean, it for economize. I, I love this. We, we getting some good vocab in this episode right here, man. These people going to get their money's worth. Yeah, man. It, it really like when I listen, the sermons I listen to have to do with folks who are committed to this love thing. Like the ones who realize that in their life, there's going to be a lot of, um, shots they take a lot of mistakes we make but and uh, specifically uh of our ilk those who uh recognize jesus as messiah and we want to follow in those ways yeah uh figuring this thing out it's a, it's a process and i've seen you publicly work through that process and i can only imagine what it's like in your more deep circles and so that's why it's just like anytime uh a trey mixtape drops i.e sermon drops <laughs> i'm like i bet it's like it's so easy to listen to. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. And, and I appreciate that, man. Really, that's honestly one of the highest compliments you can get me. Like my my mentor, my pastor once told me, he was like, "Yo, you sound like you lyrical when you preaching." And I was like, "Yo, I I have arrived. That's what I, that's what I was going for the whole time." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I hear and I appreciate that wholeheartedly because um, at the end of the day, I want to enjoy what I'm doing. I want to enjoy um, what I'm feeling called to do like i try to do that <laughs> the little tricky playing stuff sometimes like oh man i gotta do such and such like every now and again it's i'm like oh man i gotta preach and i catch myself like no 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 i don't gotta preach i get to preach I right to. And, and then um just coming up there and, and adjusting it and having fun with it and viewing the sermonic presentation not just as this didactic process of making sure we got the right outline in place and everything and that is important 
but also the art behind it, right? Like how right. are we making this thing flow? What what is the end result gonna be like? Is there gonna be some harmony to it? Are they gonna be quotable? Something that people can sing along to in a replay yeah. and stuff like that, right? And I'm not speaking literally right now. I don't I don't do actual singing and, and I'm not putting together a jingle, but I do want this to resonate with people in a certain way. I want I want yeah. them to be able to carry something with it, you know. Yeah. Um I'll never forget for sure a bunch of quotable quotables, but also presence is very strong uh in your sermon uh your jonah yeah your podcast series was great and i loved hearing it even more unpacked in the sermon series that you got on youtube and i'll never forget you talking about jonah stepping up to nineveh's uh ruler and you just being your whole self like you being your whole black self and you're just bringing yeah your sanctified imagination but your personality and i remember you like kind of mimicking what you would imagine the leader of Nineveh to be he's like don't know if you don't get your tail out my face in 20 <laughs> seconds like you know what i'm saying like it's yeah. like that stuff carries when you're not bound to this hermeneutically or homiletically proper thing that yeah. and to be clear to be clear I, want, I don't want people to think i'm no scholar like no nah, my, my homiletics be be sound too like yeah the, the, the science is there but like it's, it's, it's different ways to go about this thing is, is what i always try to impress more people and it's funny when you mention like the presence or whatever because i'm sure we'll, we'll get there based upon today's topic of conversation or whatever but like a cool little anecdote um I was in this class in seminary. It was called, it was an elective called preaching in context. And one of the things we were asked to do is consider our preaching influences. Like what are the things and the people and, and the settings that have influenced the way that we approach pulpit ministry. And I, I was sitting and listening out. I, I was like, yo, one of the things is for sure URL battle rap, right? Like, yes. and, and some of like my presentation in the pulpit just comes from like watching people just confidently deliver these bars that they had crafted, right? These things that they had spent weeks and months crafting and finding out how to deliver in the right way and how do they use their bodies and their voice and their volume and their pacing to yeah. then deliver this to to create maximum effect, right? right. And sometimes they're you know, watching these people like I, that is something I unashamedly bring into the pulpit for the simple fact that preaching is an embodied experience, mm. right? Like if this was just about the words, I could have emailed this to y'all. Right. <laughs> but well, this, this very moment that we share, I'm bringing, like you said, all of myself, right? My my voice, my body, and whatever else comes to mind there. And um, I take that very seriously. So, man, I appreciate you noticing those things. I don't like name in public all that often, not that I'm hiding them, but. Right, right. That's, that's dope, man. Keep keep saying stuff. I feel good right now. Oh, for real. <laughs> no, no, that, that, I'm sure there will be more with it. Um. Yeah, so that that actually is the topic I brought you into today. Last time you came on the podcast, you were talking about the Jay-Z Nas ether you would bring up in a class if you were to teach one. And we texted back and forth a little bit about uh battle rap and hip hop and uh all these things. And I and you as a preacher, and I've noticed like <laughs> Some battle rap, like when they launched those haymakers, you got some of those in your sermons. So all of this, you uh, bring in all of that. And so like sometimes when I hear your sermons, I'm like, hold up. He just 
putting a fourth scheme in this. Like, like if you can see what he was doing, like, I wish I could just write that out. Like when your uh, pastor says you're lyrical, there's for sure a pen to that thing. And so I wanted to bring uh, RGA, Trey Ferguson III, <laughs> on to this podcast to talk about the embodied life of pastoral love and how he brings love and hip hop. I'm just joking. How he brings <laughs> how how he brings that battle rap and hip hop and just comedic flair into all of that. So yeah, can you just give us um, the well, let me say this. In your pastoral ministry and your preaching work, uh, can you unpack a little bit of what you just said before? Like, how did that come about and how does that creative process like look like and uh, what has influenced you? You can take any of those questions one by one and I can repeat them after because I know I ain't really set you up. But No, nah, for sure. I hear you. Um, that's interesting because particularly when it comes to how I came into this, it was in a very roundabout way, right? One of the things that I enjoy doing is working with other developing ministers and preachers and people who are training to become preachers in public and, and things of that nature. Um, because even as I am honing my craft or whatever, uh, being able to do that in community and concert with other people at different phases on the journey, whether they've been preaching for 20, 30 years, whether they this they second ever attempt at a practice sermon or whatever, um, finding your voice, the, the, the sound that uh, God makes using you, right, yeah, yeah. is is so mm -hmm. critical. And I say that because the pulpit is in effect, or okay, if we think of the church universal, right? Like some people talk about a capital C church, a local church, right? Um, the church universal ought to sound like an orchestra. Mm -hmm. right? It's different instruments. We're sounding different things, but they harmonize and they make a beautiful sound together. And one of the things that I struggled with early on in preaching is I thought that I was supposed to make the same sound or the same sounds as the people who were, um, mentoring me and shaping me. And so I spent several years, in fact, mim mimicking, I was about to say mimitating, uh, <laughs> imitating and mimicking my mentor, who yeah. is in my estimation, like a phenomenal preacher. I thought that was a good example to imitate. And I would do it. And it was funny because like we were always debrief afterwards. Like, how do you think that went? And I was like, well, I think like my outline was strong and, you know, and but like something like, I don't know, I could have done better. And what I realize now looking back on this is that I spent so much time and energy trying to be him that I neglected the ways in which I could be myself. Mm. Right. Um, I was to use a biblical metaphor, trying to fight David's battle, wearing Saul's armor. Mm. And so right. the very moment, and, and it's happened for me because I, I, Started preaching before I'd attended anybody's seminary, right? I went through formal preaching classes and stuff like that, or formal preaching training before I entered a formal academic setting. Mm -hmm. And when I started taking preaching classes in seminary using different nomenclature um, for the moves of a sermon and, and different language for the goals and everything, and um, it kind of gave me a laboratory almost to experiment with some different things. And I yeah. realized like, Oh snap, this right here, looking at this, this way is kind of helpful for me. And when I gave myself permission 
to do what was helpful or natural to me in this regard, I started developing my own voice. And what I recognized was that the influence and the fingerprints of my mentor did not vanish or diminished. Um, but what happened was I started discovering myself and what worked for me. And that's mm -hmm. when I like started shifting a little bit from somebody who was trying to be a bit more didactic in the way that I worked through this and, and go through this to somebody who viewed this more as art. Right? So there's times when I'm putting together a sermon and I'll know the main idea, right? Like I always right. put together a sermon in a sentence. And it's funny because like when I'm coaching people through this or not coaching, when I'm working with people on this, um, I always say, look, look, if you don't know what you're trying to communicate, nobody else will either. <laughs> so right. um, I always, always boil this down to what I call a sermon in a sentence, right? Some people call it a proposition. Some people call it a thesis, but that that is my main thing. And I never hide what that is. I'll typically, I have a tell. There's a tell in the pulpit. You can watch most of my sermons and I'll say the line, if you don't hear nothing else, I say, hear this. And then I'll right. say it like straight up. So I'm not, there's no magic behind what I'm doing. No, this is what I'm trying to communicate to you. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it's almost like the, the hook <laughs> of, of, of a song would be right. The, yeah. I tag my sermons with a title, but then I'll have that hook. This is the main thing and everything else reinforces this hook. And then. Right. From there, there's sub ideas or whatever that, that I feel speak to that larger point. And I'm spending time developing those. What illustrations can I use here? What are uh, the bits of poetry or prose that I can infuse to make this come alive to you? Yeah. How do I arrange these in a way that's most effective and natural to the text and to the point that is before you? Right. Um, and when I work through this, it's exciting for me because like I, you you heard the, the the track I released on the Substack or whatever. And yeah. it, I mean, it, I've, I've heard worse, but I clearly wasn't like the best rapper in the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but you uh, you stayed you stayed on flow. You have bars. You know what I mean? See, I need people to understand that because people trying to play like, oh, it's a good thing you gave that up. I'm like, no, I don't do me. I, I gave this up because I had other stuff going on, not because right. I couldn't. Like, but what it I, was not I trash by any estimation. <laughs> but any. my point is that, like, when I approach crafting sermons, what that gives me an opportunity to do is the, the stuff I had fun doing back when I was 15 trying to make songs, right? Like, how do I arrange this in a way that's going to land with you? Yeah. And that makes some people uncomfortable, especially people who are married to, like, the expository style of preaching where we feel it has to be didactic in, in, in this sort of way because the thinking is that like uh <laughs> i remember when joe rogan had kanye on his podcast he got to talk about his positive preacher he oh. was like yeah i don't need no sauce on my word you know because meat makes its own gravy the good meat makes its yes. own gravy and, and and that's true it's true like the the word will speak but at the end of the day if this was just about the word speaking i would just text out a scripture for y'all to read right at the end of the day if i'm gonna be here wasting up your time i need to give you something worthwhile so that it's right. not an actual waste of your time correct um, that's my job how do i take this word that makes its own gravy and and make it pretty on the plate like how, how do i make this how do i get you to stop looking at all the other things on the menu and let you know that this is what you need tonight this this right. is what what god has ordered for you on this day yes um, yes and and for that reason, like, yeah, I, I view it as a craft in that way and much like uh, a musician or, or a poet would, you know.
It's one of my favorite things to perceive in battle rap. Every rapper has their own unique thing they offer. Some folks are nice with the pen and their delivery is quite honestly, it's, it, it could be better. <laughs> and then some folks, they just are nice with the schemes and, and that like you can hear what their angle is and you know, okay, they've been working on this mug for a while. They, yeah. Their thesis statement has remained. And sometimes those them, them be the folks who sometimes lose in comparison to at least the YouTube comments. Usually the crowds know what they're doing, but like Loaded Lux, he gets that all the time, right? You don't yeah. have enough quotables. Folks can't remember you. You're not predictable enough, you know, but yeah. it's like, but he's still clear and all those things. And so it's, yeah, it's, do you, are you ever thinking about some of these dudes and maybe even some of these women who have entered the battle rap? seen as of recently right because that has its own history uh have you ever been like i right, uh let me let me tap into my murder mook a little bit and see like if something will come man um it's interesting because yeah to 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 some effect yeah not that i'm like trying to emulate particular battle rap right, right 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 but like when i think of like what's in my bag right yeah. <laughs> there, there are times when i do try to draw on on certain things so like you mentioned the jonah series a couple of times right yeah. when i preached four weeks in a row on the same book and i literally preached through the book of jonah and at one one of those i think it was the second one in there i literally preached through the whole chapter in one day and one of the things that I did in that series is I was very intentional on not preaching the same way twice. So if I was a little more expository one week where I, I try to break things down the next week, perhaps like there was one week I didn't even read the scripture at the top. I literally preached through the scripture. Right. right. And so some of that is fun for me, like in the way that a battle rapper might be real good with the pen and some stuff that you only going to catch on replay. But they can also like have a couple haymakers in there or like name right. flips or whatever. Like they got right. different tools in their bag depending on who the opponent is. Right. Like there are times when I look at something and be like, oh man, let me, let me see how we, we gonna, we gonna do it with this one. Right. Yeah. And then there are times when, um, to sound a bit like crass or irreverent, like I play, I play with the, with the, with the sermon. Like, yo, what can we do here? How can I have fun with this? Because at the end of the day, this is a rhetorical exercise. Yeah. That's what I'm doing here. And, and how can I have fun? How can I make this engaging? Not just for the people who are hearing it, but for me, myself, how can I stay excited about doing what I get to do? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means digging into the bag. And I don't think that that is wrong or unbiblical in any sense of the word i think in the same way that sometimes jesus teaches in parables and sometimes jesus teaches in sermons sometimes yeah. jesus teaches in, in examples and, and things of that nature like you got to know what's in your bag and i honestly think it's a disservice to the people that you serve if you never go into your bag like if if it's always one thing because yeah i have i have cheat codes there's things that i can do like if right now somebody asked me to preach tomorrow right and they gave me a text like oh i, I can crank out something 
Right. Um, cause I got, I have a format, I have a template, I have a cheat code. I, I can do that. Right. But if that's all you're giving people week in and week out, like say you become one of them predictable rappers, you see, <laughs> you know, uh, Hollow the Dime versus John John the Dime, where you yep. like, uh, he's still rapping with four bars, man. That's, you will see how easy it is to predict that. Like, <laughs> and when, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? Like when, when you become that way, eventually we get so stuck in like the, the rhythm of, of things that you might as well just cut the sermon out. And I'm not saying that as an insult, there are church traditions where the sermon is not the main thing. Those are perfectly right. legitimate ways of meeting God. Right. When, when you have a more formal liturgy and the homily is, is just a part of the worship service, that's fine. But if you go and insist that people sit there and listen to you talk for 40 minutes every Sunday, you better go in the bag sometimes. Right. That's, that's such a crucial point. Because what you're talking about is there is a history in global Christianity where our liturgies are not the same. For some folks, the Eucharist is the center of all that they do. So preaching is just not central, and that's fine. And that's actually led them to beautiful things and acts of love and service in their city. You know what I'm saying? But with that particular thing, I think it's like, all right, let's just be honest that we are a preaching heavy church. And if yeah. that's the case, then why would we like pretend that there's no human mechanisms to what we're trying to do here? We're not trying to manufacture yeah. the love of God as if it's fake, but we are means. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. So <laughs> what I kind of want to talk about in relation to that build up and the understanding of the scenes we're in and even just what you're trying to get into your bag through what you often preach your content is often exhortational to receiving the love of god and the call to love that's what if i'm not mistaken i've heard you try to uh communicate like even in your valentine sermon like that was a little bit of what brought this idea of this podcast together because you're bringing your r&b bag into it bring your hip-hop bag into it and all of that and it's like all right so this preaching thing since you're a pastor actually has some ethical or uh pastoral implications to that that i want to see how how do you weave those worlds together like yeah for sure man um a new command I give to you that you will love one another. Love is the highest command. That's what it's all about. As far as I'm concerned, love is the only command. Love of God and love of neighbor and these two hang all the rest of the commandments. And so pretty much everything I try to communicate, whether it's um, when I was being trained and preaching originally, heard there's only two sermons that, that we preach. It's trust God or obey God, right? <laughs> um, How do we tie both of those things back into this idea of love. Even the Valentine sermon, how do we define love, right? Like there's longer definitions. Love is the giving of all that one is, has, and does for the positive benefit of another, expecting nothing in return. Cool. Like some people have a hard time recalling that. I only know it like that because I've been rehearsing it for so long, but I define it as love is the commitment to wholeness. God is love and God is committed to our wholeness. And what does that look like? And that requires a certain level of communal accountability, a certain level of what we would recognize as obedience. It requires trusting that God is who God says God is. It requires trusting in the character of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ in in our Christian context. Right. And so when you say that, yeah, I'm real adamant about love. Yeah. Love is the main thing. 
faith and hope and love all that remains and the greatest of these is love uh, you know yeah. um and, and and so if i ever give a teaching whether it's in a small group bible study setting or in a pulpit whatever that is it doesn't tie back into notion of love i feel like i've done um something uh incomplete and even if it doesn't end upbeat because love love ain't always like the happiest feeling there's right. a lot of stuff in the bible that um alludes to the more unpleasant aspects of life what does love lead us to in those situations what is the demand of those who are witnessing people go through that yeah can you give us a little peek into what that world is like for you because the folks like me who know you the twitter world the social media world they don't ever get to actually that's a lie i think some of your pastoral Love comes out on Twitter by the ways you've even organized us to consider helping other folks, right? But like in your community, mm-hmm. what does the work of love look like when people are sharing with you their wounds? You know, it's like I've I've been really broken and shattered by this. Or uh yeah, what does commitment to wholeness in a situation look like that? And also, how have you experienced love as inspired by Jesus? in the accountability. So the pastoral love, like, Hey, let me shepherd you real quick. And Hey, let me get your raggedy behind back <laughs> to where, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes for me, it's been trying to untrain myself from the impulse to speak positively about all things, because I found that when I'm in crappy situations and somebody comes in trying to be helpful, like in all, in all honesty and all earnestness, trying to be an encourager and they start speaking on the platitudes. It can be grinding. Right. And then it also places this expectation that you are not allowed to feel bad things. You are not allowed to feel sorrow. You feel as though you are spiritually immature or experiencing dejection. Right. Um, And so I've tried to untrain myself from responding to grief and distress and despair with that all the time and sometimes responding with the ministry of presence right if you read through the book of job you got job's friends that sit with him and then they start talking like well you must have done something and all this stuff and and yeah. god has words for them like you don't know what you're talking about yeah <laughs> you you do not know what you're i'm here to say officially put dr fauci on capital I, <laughs> let me say officially you do you have no idea what you're talking about right <laughs> um and so for sometimes oh for sometimes sometimes for me that means showing up with people as they are feeling things and experiencing things. And if there are ways that I can help, right? Like somebody doesn't know how they're going to make rent. Okay. Can I help get the funds so that that burden is lightened? If there is no way that I can, like, can I sit with you and make room for the things that you are feeling? That what you are feeling is valid, that you feeling sad, depressed, angry, enraged, whatever you are feeling about this is, a natural reaction that it is a part of the humanity that God gave you in the very image of God to fill these things. Yes. Um, sometimes just affirming that and, and sitting with people in that is the best that I can do as a pastor. Right. Yeah. Um, and then from there, okay, what does love lead us to in this situation? Right. Right. Um, if my belief is that God is a liberator, 
where does God lead us to when God discovers us in the throes of the, the furnace of this tough situation? And and what what is the path to that place look like for us, right? Yeah. Those, those are the questions I'm trying to ask. And sometimes it's a slow journey um, through therapy, through licensed counseling. Sometimes it is just being surrounded by some people who care about you. Sometimes it's somebody take you on a trip to, to, to get your mind off some stuff. I need a distraction here. Yeah, and, nice. and then we'll deal with this when we're um, a, a different headspace, you know, and all of that is pastoral work in, in my mind, in my yeah. But to the other end, when we talk about like that accountability and when it's time to gather people in, one of the things that Jesus does is holds people accountable, right? Yeah. Like the, the Matthew 18 we like to throw around all the time is essentially about accountability. And there cannot be accountability where there is not love and relationship in place. Like the thing that grounds that is and people got to be real careful about this because we throw Matthew 18 around in public all the time. He says, no, if a brother sins against you, yeah. meaning that somebody that there's an established relationship with and some expectation of uh, mutual accountability harms that relationship, then you, you go to that person, right? right? And so with that being said, there comes a time like, I'm always wary of people when I hear from them all the time and it's always how everybody else is wilding. And if it's okay, one person, fine. Maybe that person is wrong. But when it becomes a habit where every single problem that comes up is everybody else's fault, I'm like, wait a second. Let's examine something here. Mm-hmm. How is this problem a constant throughout all of our relationships and all of these settings and nothing's ever our fault? Yeah. Um, because the Holy Spirit isn't a finger pointer all the time, right? Sometimes the Holy Spirit holds up a mirror and says, oh, there are still some things that we got to work out through the process of sanctification, justification, whichever one of those occasion words you like to use. Um, but sometimes it's a matter of like, okay, are, are we being as honest with ourselves as we need to be about the areas that we still have growth? Mm. And that can be uncomfortable sometimes because our natural posture is defensive more a lot of times we we don't we don't like to have that mirror held up, but there are times when what maturity looks like is leaning into that level of accountability like you know what my bad like you you watch basketball when when a player know they hack somebody and they raise their hand when they're like, yeah that, that, that's me like yeah. you gotta hold up your hand when the whistle blow like nah yeah. you you did that. And and the only way we're going to help the team out, the only way we're going to help the community out is if we start playing a little smarter. You got to play without fouling, you know? That's um, good. That's good. Mm, we, yeah. I That piece on untraining ourselves from platitudes, and like you said, sometimes it's well-intentioned because we feel like we need to – we feel like the person in distress is evoking some – like, cause why else would they come from us to us if they didn't want us to fix their problems? Right. And it really takes a humility and maturity to sit in that peace and not feel like insights are the most important thing or that a ladder is what you got to give to put in that hole. It's like, I serve a God who got in that hole with me in that dish with me, you know? And so, and, and so it, part of that of what I'm hearing you is this journey. Uh, maybe this like, it doesn't have to be the language we use, but of emotional health that can actually be like really like 
a merciful gift to us when we recognize that the job of love is not to be someone's savior. But I think the heart of what God's shown us in the gospel is uh, the sense of siblinghood, friendship, right? I have not called you servants. I have called you friends. Like, and so God's, um, reaching out and giving us that status via divine love is something that could serve as a rubric for how we pay attention. I, I came across this realization a few mo- a years ago. Um, well, where it settled with me is that ministry is nothing less than helping other people know that they're noticed by God. Yeah. And yeah. so if we can dig into that thing, that's where I feel like healing can begin. And then that accountability piece, I ain't going to lie to you. It's, it's sometimes soul crushing when I consider the weight of harm I've caused to relationships. And so uh, another question I want to ask about pastoral work, how do you talk to people who recognized how big, how shameful the acts they have done are, and they do feel that some of that shame and uh, realize it might not be, fresh or opportune to reconcile with the people they have hurt. Like the folks they wounded are not ready. So that kind of creates more sense of stress and separation from God and um, others that they would have considered siblings or friends. Um, Like cause shame from the, I've heard you talk about as maybe the minor infractions or the personal activities we've had against people that have hurt. It, It carries deeply. I know within me, and then I know sometimes in my relationships, I do want to sit in it with them, but sometimes they're like, Zuru, what do I do to not feel this way or anything or, or to, to be able to deal with, I, I've harmed someone. I was wrong. Is there still mercy for me? Yeah. Yo, it's wild that you're asking this because literally, um, before we started recording, I was working on drafting, um, some, some writing for, for this book coming up. Mm hmm. And I was working on a chapter on shame mm. um, because that word typically has a negative connotation for justifiable reasons. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we often try to coach people out of shame. And that's good because there is a bad shame. There is a shame that is a result of. OK, here, here's my theory. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not going to drop the whole book on, on the podcast, but but some yeah, else yeah, yeah. I've been playing with. Right. There is no love without accountability. Okay. There, there's no love without accountability. Love without accountability actually manifests itself as enabling. Mm-hmm. Um, accountability with no love manifests itself. There's no, there's no accountability without love. Accountability with no love manifests itself as exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when the expectations that we fall short of and end up carrying shame about are actually re- the result or placed there by people who aim to exploit us, right? That expects that exploitation or that accountability with no love. Yeah. We need to get rid of that. That's a bad shame. We shouldn't, we shouldn't carry that. Yeah. But love married with accountability, the only true love there is, is a commitment to wholeness. Um, that shame can actually be a powerful motivator to do better. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you talk about feeling the shame of relationships that you've harmed in the past, one of the things that does is it holds you to a higher standard of accountability and, and properly stewarding the relationships that you have now. And that's a good thing, right? We actually see shame used as a tool in the Bible in a positive way to motivate people closer to wholeness. 
Um, right. When you feel shame about the ways that you have been an agent of breaking things and relationships and everything, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, that, that is a good shame to have, not just on a personal level, but on a societal level, right? If we look at the way that Germany has responded to the Holocaust, it is leagues better than the way that the United States yeah, okay. has handled, um, slavery or concentration camps or the trail of tears or whatever have you, yeah, right? Exclusionary um, acts, all of that. Right. Yeah. Um, United States has, has shown in some ways to be a largely shameless society. Um, where we and, should bring some shame into it. <laughs> right. So we yeah. go, I, I told you, man, I'm, I'm about to make a t-shirt. We got to bring shame back. Like we got to yeah, do yeah. that. We got to do that oh. for the culture. Um, right. but, but, and, and, and that makes some people uncomfortable. Like I know um, somebody got really upset and it was like, mm, we shouldn't bring shame back. And I was like, no, nah, you got to hear me. Like, right. I, I don't think that all shame is a bad thing. Like there, there is a healthy shame for right. a society, for a culture. Like it, shame is a, a partner of accountability. Yes. Right. Um, feeling ashamed about some things is a good thing. It, it is a sign that you have a healthy moral compass that is still pointed towards community and wholeness. In that yes. Way. Um, but when it comes to sitting with people in that, we have to make sure that we don't leave people feeling stuck in a sense of shame that prevents them from growing. Because when shame turns into a pity party, now it's something else. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we got to do that, like make sure that shame is an offer of a testimony and, and, and not a tombstone of, of the end of something, you know, um, that was off the top, by the way. That, that was, <laughs> I was about to say, that was, I was like, was that a written? No, nah, that, that was, was not a written. That was all, that was off the top. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, he said, gotta make sure that thing a testimony and not a tombstone. God dang. Yeah, yeah, that was that was all to see. Sometimes I, I, in my bag, like I got a whole lot of stuff in my bag. You feel me? No, no. Oh, but that's that's what it comes down to for me is which one of these is actually grounded in love when when love is defined as the commitment of wholeness, the mm. commitment to wholeness. Because if if shame is either me just feeling guilty about expectations that were placed on me by someone or something or a system that was designed to exploit me, I got to get rid of that off rip. Yeah. If the shame is pointing me towards restoring a relationship or or fortifying relationships and wholeness, that's actually a good thing. If it's keeping me stuck in pity, now that that's something else I've let take care of. Um, and I'm actually manifesting um, bad habits, bad relational habits when shame is pointing me inwards instead of outwards, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, like bad shame really does turn into like this corrosive introspection that turns relationships into just like these uh interventions of just like comfort to try to help yeah. you not feel bad about yourself when it's like oh no this this accountability was supposed to create creative interior resources within you to recognize where yeah. uh falsities or um sin is bubbling up within you that harms others and then the good shame really like cuts off the systemic conditions that we do need to bring back a lot of accountability and uh, force on. It was crazy before the Ch Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, Gloria Johnson situation was happening in Tennessee. And that's where I stay right now. Um, I was reading, um, <laughs> tell me why I almost called Dr. Cornell West, Dr. Creflo Dollar. Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord. Oh, Apologize. Lord. <laughs> Apologize. Yes, I'm sorry, Cornell. I'm sorry, Dr. West. But he, I was reading his 
um, because he's really obsessed with the black church tradition, the prophetic tradition that is not bound to white supremacy's effects on enslaved enslaved peoples and their descendants. And he talks about an inescapable opportunism that is inherent within the church. It's like, I I love it when I see folks say, yeah, like, you know how uh, uh, Representative Farmer and all these cats were coming at Pearson saying, you taking this time to throw a temper tantrum. He's like, okay, I already told y'all I broke decorum. It's funny to people that we say broke decorum who usually gets in problems for doing so. But he's like, hey, I am here because we're trying to give attention to the fact that the number one reason for kids' death is gun violence. And y'all are still trying to silence these. So I'm going to, with my black traditional ass, <laughs> like church, and I'm going to step up. I, this, 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 uh, whatever they call it, this well is a pulpit. God. Okay. That wasn't, all right. That was me. That was me. But this well, <laughs> that was me. Uh, but, <laughs> but you, you get what I'm trying to say. They, yeah, yeah, uh, for, yeah. like this well that I'm standing at is going to be the place where I'm going to proclaim peace justice yeah. and like liberation and saying Tennessee what we have done what what you're responsible for these policies we're not enacting is shameful and we've been shameless and responsible let's change that narrative but usually in the systemic sense it's never responded to in a good way yeah and that discourages me <laughs> um but um yeah I want to um I know we got like Four minutes. So I, I want to just give you, uh, I want to be able to have you talk about this on my podcast because I'm really excited for this project. I'm going to, in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to a GoFundMe. Uh, guys, Pastor Trey's writing a book. I am. It's true. It's called Theologizing Bigger. And I just want, I know, uh, we weren't able to talk about the content as much as I wanted to because I choked, but. Um, I want you to be able to share with us what's this process been like? What is God showing you in the midst of it? And what are you really hoping uh comes through? Because I know I'm excited, but it sounds like none of us are ready. Yeah, man, it's been a terrifying process, right? Mm-hmm. Like um <laughs> it's been it's been terrifying from the jump. Even the way I'm going about doing it, like I had the announcement video that that I guess would be in the GoFundMe. Um yep. uh but I, I didn't go about the traditional publishing route where I find like even a small publishing house that gives me a tiny advance and then goes on this thing because I, I didn't too much. Well, like I wasn't very fond of the way those payment structures look. So what I did was I found um, what people would call a hybrid publisher, where typically um, the publishing house and the author would split the cost of production and do it. But the problem is, like, I told them straight up, I was like, "Hey, man, with my bank account set up, I ain't got it." Like, and, and been people <laughs> confused. Like, I, I really do not have it like that. Like, mm-hmm. my wife is a teacher, and I work for Jesus. Now, I'm not in no mega church or nothing. Like, it's, it's a couple of us in there on Sunday. Right, know? right. Like, that's that's my life, and um. So I, I, at one point, I kind of wanted to go a more traditional route for the simple fact that I didn't have these funds, but um, somebody had planted a thought. It was like, yo, what if you crowdfunded? And a part of me, I was like, well, it's going to make people think I'm not legitimate and something like that. But I was like, wait, what better way? Because half of what publishers want to know is that you have an engaged and waiting audience, right? Yeah. Like, What better way to display that than to go this route? And so I kind of took a gamble, like maybe 
there's something to this. And maybe there are other people who are struggling to find a way to, to get published or, or to pursue this. And I can actually provide another path forward in that regard. And I did that. And I'm so far, like, my mind is blown by the response, whatever. And I give that whole backstory. I haven't talked about the book at all, but I give that backstory because the whole thing behind theologizing bigger is that I feel as though we are constrained by the things that we have seen. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel as though sometimes we have um, fallen short in our charge to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that our imagination has been shackled and that when we lean into community, that we can see more of the things that God has in store for us as we imagine new ways of being and showing up for each other. Mm-hmm. So even the way that I chose to go about announcing and launching and, and publishing this book is an embodiment of what I think and believe about community around us because the heart of the book here is that like yeah we all have our traditions and our ways of understanding god or sometimes maybe we've left those behind because we can hold them anymore but what if we were to allow some voices from outside of our own tradition or some some ways of thinking to impact that and and is there god outside of of the pens and the houses that we have grown used to. Like what happens if we theologize, if we think thoughts about God that are bigger than our own traditions, what would that lead us to, you know? So I, I imagine in, uh, are you tapping into your MDiv bag and talking about church history as a response of that thinking bigger and theologizing bigger, like drawing from different streams of theological thought, particularly? To an extent, yeah, but also like fun to, like if I want to be a nerd about it and use the the MDiv bag, this book is a work of constructive theology. Mm-hmm. So more than digging back into the history because history is so like variant, right? I'm not speaking just to my church tradition. I'm talking more about a climate that we inhabit, right? Mm. And I speak to the fact that a lot of times we think of Christian and our thinking defaults to this brand of white evangelicalism because they happen to be the loudest on the scene right now. And the most and, populated, right? Well, depends on how you can, well, yeah, I guess, I guess. Like I guess, in the US? Right. Well, the, the biggest denomination in the US is actually the Roman Catholic Church and then the Southern Baptist Convention, oh, right? Okay, um, okay. And then and, and j- just even the way we think about that, right? Because we know, like, we hear it time and again that the SBC is the largest Protestant denomination, but that word Protestant, what about the people who don't identify that way? Um, right. And okay. if you add up all of the Protestants, then they might, the, the, yes, they do outnumber um, the Roman Catholic Church there. But if you are looking at, like, who has the plurality here? It's the Roman Catholic Church because everything else is so fragmented. But even just the ways that we think about and default to, to our thinking there, like yeah. what is there to learn from the Roman Catholic tradition? What is there to learn from the black church tradition? What is there to know to learn from Christians who are not married to any Western way of thinking? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And how, if we take their experiences as valid and serious, how might that impact the way that we approach the world? How might that, revive our imagination for different ways of being yes yes i'll never forget man uh when i think i was in high school uh do you remember when the coptic christians were beheaded a few years back i, remember- I actually don't thank goodness oh my goodness i mean yeah, not- oh yeah so it happened a while back Ooh. and folks were discussing well coptic christianity there are some <laughs> there are some creeds they don't adhere to 
it's a little bit shaky and it's like oh oh, oh. so <laughs> what we're talking about is these folks like the the videos that were unleashed and revealed like this is why these Good people Lord. are being killed like they are not revoking some claim to jesus and i i promise i'm not trying to uh go into this like the the like the persecution of religions yeah like there is a legitimacy and it's not only to christian religions that that's happened to right. i.e u.s is like the experience of muslim folks the those practicing Islams. but yeah like in that different region that happened and folks were like yeah i know they died for jesus but they didn't per believe in this particularly like uh i, I don't think uh what, what was it called it was like the Chalcedonian definition that they didn't adhere to. Right. And then <laughs> one of those schisms that happened, and we don't even typically think of them as part of the schism because that's how forgotten they are, which is wild to me, right? Because like Jesus says straight up, other sheep have I who are not of this fold. I got to go get them too. And so when we start putting up these barriers to who is among us and who is not, like we have the right to self-definition of community. But when you start talking about matters of salvation who jesus is here for like you got a lot of arrogance to think that oh th this is a reason that well maybe i don't have to worry about that so much come on bro like yeah. come come on like so even go ahead yeah. even to the point where like people accuse me as if i should be ashamed of, of it of, of being a universalist right um and and yeah my desire is that everyone would be safe yeah. <laughs> that yeah. that is that is absolutely my desire <laughs> Um, everybody would would experience the reign of God. That is absolutely my desire, regardless of of your creed, right? Um, and and <laughs> so the fact that like we often put these prerequisites in place, like oh, I'm not even going to mourn this 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 way unless X Y Z is in place. That's wild to me, and I feel as though it harms not only our witness but our capacity for ministry. Yeah, the simple fact that Jesus does not always make your your creedal effect uh, uh like your your the creeds that you confirm are not a prerequisite to jesus ministering to and serving you he didn't check to see what the woman caught in the act of adultery believed before he stepped in the savior it's not, it's not right. how that works right? right um and sometimes it's our advocacy or our ministry or our serving or just doing the right thing that actually invites people to question what it is that we affirm and believe yes yes okay so i hear you so there might be some gleaning back but the constructive theology project is also like i what could we be to it's like this imaginative invitation the for sure for sure mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's what it's about bro it's about acknowledging a bit of where we are it is about me looking at some of the things that i feel stand in between us and where we are being called to yeah and it's an invitation to answer the call to so i'll use this phrase here it'll come up in the book yeah. but salvation is in part a rehumanization project right like we are born with the capacity for imagination mm -hmm. and from the time that we are young that is chipped away at it. It's eroded, right? Like if you right now have two children, two four-year-olds in a room and you give both of them a cookie and one cookie is bigger than the other, one of them will immediately tell you that's not fair. Mm -hmm. And often the response becomes, 
life's not fair in effect, right? And then we put them in schools and we start training them to become productive members of a society that has already been constructed. Training them out of the sense of justice and fairness and this imagination for what can be utopian. We train people out of that. We dehumanize people. We we have a society of people who are trained to operate like machines. We measure ourselves by productivity. Mm. We reward people who can produce the most. We ascribe worth to the things that they were able to produce and the money that they got as a result of those things. It's, it's a process of dehumanization. And one of my arguments is that salvation, what Jesus does on the cross is an invitation to rehumanization. Right. And when he says that the the only way that you can enter the kingdom is you have to be born again, it's hitting a reset button on our vision. Mm. It it, it is Romans 12 two. do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. It is is the invitation uh, to to reactivate your imagination. And what are the better ways of being that we can uh, embody? What does the kingdom look like right here on earth as it is in heaven? Right. Right. That's yeah. my argument. That's that's theologizing bigger. Let's go, y'all. Uh, so I'm gonna put that link um, to when the pre-order comes out. I'll definitely edit it and all that good stuff uh, to have the show notes. I'm gonna put that GoFundMe link in, and then uh, I'm gonna hit that. Make sure you hit that tip jar. I have a tip jar in my show notes now. Uh, I'm gonna put your if you could send me your Cash App and Venmo too. That I'll put in the show notes just if people want to show some. I'm love. past the Trail Five everywhere. Man. I yeah, that's the Trail Five everywhere. Yeah. All right, so don't yeah. be shy. Uh, right, like uh, there was a lot of things that were said here that shouldn't be free. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. <I'll> see. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. I'm really excited for you, man. And, uh, it's, it's really cool to just get to witness from a distance this part of your life and, uh, get to bring you into my world a little bit. Those who I've gotten to cross, whose pilgrimages I've gotten to cross and do that. So yeah, to you fellow pilgrims, uh, here's to painting a canvas of hope and light in our world today. Thank you, Pastor Trey. Hey, man. Appreciate you.